Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Current History Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to educate on the historical events that have caused the current events that we have today. In this episode, I'll be diving deeper into the Russian and Ukrainian conflict with Professor McBride, who teaches history at UCLA. Without further ado, please enjoy the conversation I had with this amazing academic. Um, hi, so can you, thank you for doing this, first of all, and can you please introduce yourself and who you are and your experience? Uh, how much information do you want? Um, just a brief overview of your work. Uh, okay, sure. So, all right, so I'm uh, Professor Jeremy McBride. I'm a, a assistant professor in the history department at UCLA. I specialize in themes related to uh, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in the 20th century. Um, in particular, I work on issues around the Second World War and the early Cold War period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so throughout the history of Russia and Ukraine and the Russian Empire, how do you think that Ukraine became ethnically and culturally distinct from the other sections of the empire? Um, so the point of differentiation like in many countries around the world but particularly in Europe was a long process it did not um, happen overnight um, this was a process that mostly developed in the case of Ukraine during the second half of the 19th century um, part of Ukraine what is now constitutes Ukraine which is again kind of a complicated topic to even talk about because if we look at the map of Ukraine uh, today, parts of Ukraine had been a part of a number of different empires or other states uh, over the course of the last couple centuries. Uh, But if we go back to the 19th century, most of what is now uh, constitutes Ukraine was part of the Imperial Russian Empire. And then another small part uh, was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it was a people who spoke a different dialect, um, who had some different cultural practices uh, in parts of Western Ukraine uh, that began to uh, develop uh, a written Ukrainian language, um, a distinct kind of cultural uh, movement that differentiated themselves from their Polish neighbors to uh, the East, the West, I'm sorry, as well as the Russians uh, and to the East. Um, and it was, and, and as it was the case with a lot of um, countries or kind of developing nations at this time, it often, uh, it often relied upon um, people in the intelligentsia or the intellectual class to really help um, kind of codify or create movements to push for um, independence or for kind of the, to define themselves as a distinct culture uh, from those around them. And this was no different in, in Ukraine, um, the Czechs, um, many other countries uh, in the area where um, this kind of differentiation begins to happen, right? There are, there are differences on the ground or among populations. People speak different dialects, people have different religions, um, people um, have different views or cultural practices, right? But often for uh, illiterate populations or populations that haven't traveled much or haven't, you know, are not being educated beyond a really basic level, right? This idea of national identity or national difference is not something that's necessarily natural to them. Um, so it's really kind of a longer term process of uh, cultural elites kind of helping to define 
uh, the nation as something distinct and different, uh, and then people um, kind of taking on uh, these new identifiers or learning to see themselves as different types of, of, of people, whether that's kind of a different ethnicity or different nationality, or uh, also in terms of citizenship as well as, you know, whether they belong to uh, a different state or a different nation. So most of that movement begins in the latter half of the 19th century, um, and then eventually, you know, is going to be taken up and spread to other parts uh, of Ukraine, as well as in the, the Russian imperial parts as well. That's a kind of very short version of that of that answer. Yeah. And I'm also interested in the influence that geography has on it and the specific mm -hmm. occupations that people have in Ukraine. So how mm -hmm. was uh, Ukraine vital for the Russian Empire and Soviet Union and why to this day is Russia still persistent in claiming it? Right. So in terms of the geography, so Ukraine um, in many ways uh, is a part of a larger region kind of stretching from the Black Sea into uh, the Baltic in the north, um, which is often referred to as a kind of a borderland region. There are a lot of different kind of borderland regions around the world or even in Europe. Um, this is particularly referred to as one uh, because it had been a place of contestation over the centuries, whether it was um, early medieval states or principalities, whether it was these larger imperial empires that we have by the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, or rather, or whether it was actual uh, states and empires fighting over this territory in the 20th uh, century as well, in the kind of the era of uh, era of the the nation state, and as such, even the name. Uh, the Ukraine, which really means on the border, on the borderland. So this is sometimes used pejoratively or kind of as a critical way to kind of criticize Ukraine as not being a natural country, which is, I think, very unfair. Um, that obviously the the uh, etymology speaks to uh, where Ukraine is located in this point of contestation, but it doesn't mean that they have any less claim to um, having national sovereignty or their own independence as any other country that happens to lie um, in a borderland uh, in a borderland region. Uh, so Ukraine, in many ways, is also kind of diverse um, in terms of its geography and what it has to offer. Um, so to the west, there's intersection. There's intersection with various mountain changes, uh, mountain chains, and so there's some kind of highlighting regions there. Um, and the center is often referred to as the Black Earth, and this is because it's the the kind of larger uh, steppe or central part of the country um, is seen as one of the most fertile places in Europe. Um, and to this day, which we've seen as a part of the conflict and the war. Um, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about getting um, all of the agricultural products that Ukraine produces to market or getting it out of the country, which has been difficult, obviously, given the fighting. Um, but this has been a fertile region for centuries, for maybe a millennia, I guess. Um, and so um, obviously any country that has managed to control the central part of Ukraine um, has been, you know, has been happy to uh, reap, you know, reap all the fruits of um, of the harvest and of the um, of the production of, of this region. Um, in the east, um, there also, and this is also woven in other parts of the country as well, but in the east, there was a development in the 19th century in the Russian Imperial Empire um, after discovery of a number of mines. Um, this was in um, with various deposits, but this was in the eastern part, which has also been the focal point of a lot of the fighting we've seen since 2014 in the Donbass region. So this was a became a heavily industrialized zone. It was started to be industrialized already by the Imperial Russian Empire, uh, and then will be even more so under the Soviet Union. Um, so this is this kind of distinct flavor and characteristics of, uh, you know, really um, 
useful and helpful earth and land in the central part and industrialized region uh, in the east and then kind of a mix of small crafts and other different types of production small-time production um, in the western part of ukraine which had been again historically associated with the austro-hungarian empire and the polish state um and as well as of course access to the black sea uh into in the, to the south with uh famous cities like uh, odessa and other places which had uh, emerging culture that dated back thousands of years as well where many different um countries and empires and lands had come through or interacted with uh, what is now Ukraine through these ports on on the Black Sea. So there's also kind of a, a rich diversity there as well. And that has also been uh, a source of contention uh, among the Russians and the Ukrainians um, because the Russians wanted to have access to a warm uh, a warm seaport. Um, and this was part of a deal that they had struck with Ukraine after 1991 to allow parts of their Navy to use the Black Sea ports since they didn't have direct access to it as a part of the Russian Federation. Um, and of course, this all changes after Ukraine is invaded by the Russians in 2014 and taken by them. Uh, but again, another kind of geographical point that's also important to consider and keep in mind. Um, yes, and you mentioned a struggle for sovereignty, and I know that much of your research lies around World War II and the Holocaust. So how can we reconcile um, Ukraine's perspective on the Holocaust with their own um, struggles with discrimination from the Soviet Union at the time? Sure, that's a really complicated, uh, that's a really complicated topic. Um, as I mentioned, kind of the early national or nationalist movements or national movements in Ukraine dated back to the 19th century. And this was a time, particularly Western Ukraine, but all parts of Ukraine to a degree had a, had a you know, high level of diversity. But Western Ukraine, even in particular, was a, a home to uh, many different ethno-national or religious groups. You had Poles, you had Russians, you had U U Ukrainians, there was a large Jewish population, and there were Germans, other groups as well, people of different religious uh, religious backgrounds. So Ukraine had been a place where up until especially the, the First World War, um, it had been a part of these imperial empires, but it wasn't clear, you know, what would, what would be on the agenda for Ukraine uh, moving forward. Would it get um, uh, would it get its own national sovereignty, its own independence as a result of the kind of collapse of these empires at the end of World War One, um, and be able to become a multi-ethnic polity or a multi-ethnic state uh, in which there are a number of different populations living in a place called Ukraine um, and a development of what could be seen as kind of a civic national identity, right? Where you could be a Ukrainian Jew or you could be a, a Ukrainian Russian in the same sense of how we have American, you could be an American Jew or an Italian American or something of this nature. Um, and there were people as a part of the Ukrainian, early Ukrainian national movements, um, a number of uh, big thinkers and ideologues who did envision that kind of future uh, for Ukraine, an inclusive one that would uh, allow populations that are already there in this very diverse borderland region, again, to continue to live and subsist in uh, an independent Ukrainian state. Uh, but unfortunately, Ukraine never gained sovereignty as a result of the collapse of these empires and an ensuing civil war period after World War One, roughly from 1918 to 1922, where you have an extremely confusing time period in which even my students are always confused about it, where you have many different groups of people vying for control of this territory that we now know as Ukraine, 
the Poles, the Soviets, Ukrainian national groups, other groups, different groups of Ukrainians, different groups of uh, Russians, right? Everyone kind of vying for control of Ukraine. And ultimately what you get is Poland is going to take over large swaths of Western Ukraine and integrate it into its own now newly independent state. For the first time, Poland will be reconstituted since the 18th century. And then the rest of Ukraine is going to be included into, becomes a, a becomes a republic within the Soviet Union, so it becomes Soviet Ukraine. So at this point, and we'll see a lot of violence against a number of different groups uh, in Ukraine during these wars, or a lot of pogroms, so obviously a lot of violence among Ukrainians, a lot of violence between Poles and Ukrainians, a lot of violence between Ukrainians, um, Ukrainians and Russians. And it's only going to be, again, as a result of losing out on the ability to create an independent and sovereign uh, Ukrainian state after this after this this period of tumult, roughly from 1914 to 1922, uh, where you're going to see uh, develop uh, a much more deadly version uh, of of nationalism. Um, in short, we might call it kind of an ethnic nationalism. And this nationalist movement is going to posit that the only solution for Ukraine is a Ukraine for Ukrainians, right? And this is going to basically make a clear demarcation between people who understand or see themselves as ethnically Ukrainian, so speaking the Ukrainian language, um, either uh, different forms of, I won't get into all the religious aspects right now, but different, you know, basic forms of Christianity that are associated with the Ukrainians, other important Ukrainian cultural practices, right? And then anyone else, whether they're Russians or Jews or others, will be excluded from this project, right? Um, and this is, again, not uncommon for different nations in the region will also to kind of develop um, these much more hateful, ethnically minded nationalisms. Um, and so this is going to be the nationalism that is going to take the center stage during the Second World War and leading up to it, where a lot of these groups who are, again, interested in really one goal and one goal alone, which is freeing Ukraine from the grips of the Soviets and the Poles at any cost. And whether that cost is allying with Nazi Germany, whether that cost is, you know, includes uh, enacting violence against other Ukrainians, or Russians or Jews or other groups, um, these groups are highly radicalized, um, very much influenced by other far right wing nationalist movements at the time in Europe, whether fascism or other variants of fascism at the time. Um, and these are the groups that are going to be uh, involved in a lot of the violence that we see in the early parts of the war, in particular in pogroms that take place on the heels of the Nazi invasion of 1941. Some of these groups will be involved in the mass shootings that take place in Ukraine uh, and then in other violence against Jewish groups who are trying to survive the war, hiding in forests um, until 1944, um, when the Germans are eventually uh, are eventually driven out. Um, and so we have a kind of complicated situation where <clears throat> you have kind of a century or more, at least in the modern era, of different peoples different groups, different individuals in Ukraine, all of whom have kind of sought the same goal, an independent Ukrainian project or, you know, or, or Ukraine having some form of sovereignty, right? Um, but not all of these groups and individuals are the same. Um, not, a lot of them had envisioned different types of, of Ukraine. Um, now, that's not always made clear uh, when we see the way in which a lot of these groups are lionized or heroized by the Ukrainian state or by the Ukrainian diaspora. They kind of tend all to be lumped together, uh, which is often the case of kind of being shown as these were all people who were Ukrainian patriots who were fighting for an independent Ukraine. 
Um, and on one on one aspect, it's certainly true that a lot of these groups did fight for an independent Ukraine. Uh, it's just a question of, as I already just said multiple times, what kind of Ukraine that they envisioned, right, and how they went about accomplishing that task. And so it's important to remember that there were certainly Ukrainian nationalist groups, Ukrainian groups in World War One and after World War One who were involved in anti-Jewish violence and other ethnic violence. But that wasn't necessarily that didn't necessarily describe all of the groups at that time uh, or all of the goals of the Ukrainian leadership who sought a Ukrainian state. Uh, and similarly, during World War II as well, we have these far right wing ethno nationalist groups who were given a lot of power in the early part of the war leading up to the war. Um, and were really the kind of the only game left in town when it came to having any kind of meaningful organization during the Nazi occupation and immediately after. Um, but that's also not necessarily representative, right, of all of all Ukrainians or all people acting at these times. And so um, it's been difficult, especially given uh, the events since 2014 and, you know, Russian involvement first, you know, first after the Maidan. And then obviously with the full blown war, it's been difficult uh, for some to kind of reconcile glorifying uh, people who did really terrible things, especially during the Second World War, some people during World War I and the Civil Wars, um, with a need to kind of propagate a, a certain version of Ukrainian history or a heroic version of Ukrainian history, which Ukrainians are defending themselves against outsiders, which is a model that many countries uh, adopt, this kind of model of, uh, you know, of kind of self-sacrifice and martyrdom at the face of foreign invaders, Poles have a very kind of similar version of national identity and nationalism that's still prevalent in Poland to this day. Um, there's one can see and understand the need uh, or perhaps desire for that version and understanding of one's own history, especially in the context of an existential threat that we've seen since 2014 and even to a degree earlier from the Russians. One can understand that, but also at the same time, understand why people whose families came from Ukraine, um, whether they were Jewish or whoever, different groups of people who uh, have ties to this region and have ties to the really difficult and terrible you know, uh, years and turmoil around World War II, um, why when they see certain groups kind of being heroized by different people, not necessarily, not always the Ukrainian state, but other groups, um, why they see this as problematic, why this can be painful, um, and also confusing as maybe kind of as your as your question posits of, you know, do we want to be lifting up people who have blood on their hands um, in, at a time like this, because it doesn't really send the right doesn't send the message about uh, about liberal values about democracy. Um, so the people connected with the OUN or the organization Ukrainian nationalists, Stepan Bandera, and these people, they're not they weren't Democrats. They didn't envision a democratic Ukraine. They didn't want other people to be in Ukraine. Um, or if they did, you know, a very kind of specific role that they had to take. Um, this doesn't align with what we what we know many Ukrainians want today, which is a free, independent, democratic, inclusive Ukraine. Um, th th those things are kind of a mismatch. So it's there are other figures in Ukrainian history who we can draw from, who we can speak to, you know, who did want to kind of, again, more multi-ethnic, civic, uh, civically minded Ukrainian state and, and, and identity. Um, but that is kind of these layers of complexity and who, you know, which people we focus on and who gets brought to the fore and also how Western audiences or Americans or Brits or whoever, how these people try to, people who are not well-versed in this history, this can be very confusing of kind of understanding 
which figures are problematic and which kind of versions are more problematic than others and what's being glossed over when we talk about these larger lineages and histories. And so that's where historians tend to come in and try to clarify a lot of this stuff. So, Yeah, regarding the leaders throughout history, one person I was interested in, and excuse my pronunciation, uh, was Stephen Bandera. And sure. With, um, I, in my reading, I likened him to a figure in American history, such as Malcolm X, which you consider mm -hmm. a fair comparison. And like you said, is he a less complicated version of Ukrainian history and who would be a, a stronger, more compelling person to represent patriotic uh, Ukrainian values? Yeah, I mean, he's certainly, I mean, he's a very problematic figure. This is, again, this is somebody who um did not participate in the events around the first world war and civil war period um this is somebody who uh became as a university student involved in an underground conspiratorial organization uh, the polish state considered it a terrorist organization they did carry out terrorist attacks on the polish state uh in galicia and eventually wrote you know rose up in the ranks of this organization to become one of the key leaders. And then by the time we get up to the Second World War, he kind of breaks off his own faction within this movement. And then there's another faction attached to an older figure. Um, and he becomes one of the key players, I mean, throughout the 1930s, but um, in the in the in the months and years leading up to the war in this organization and its vision moving forward. Um, and its vision is not, you know, again, it's ethnic, it's an ethno-nationalist vision, it's not inclusive vision. Um, it's a pretty hateful vision of what Ukraine um should look like. I don't, you know, I don't think there's much to rescue from that vision or from that project. I mean, again, if other Ukrainians think so, then that's of course they're more than welcome to believe and think that. Um but from you know my perspective, it's definitely problematic and perhaps harmful. But um, ultimately, Ukrainians can decide for themselves what people they want to to, to raise up. Um, and the question again in recent years has been a return to a lot of these symbols and individuals, often with kind of neutering the the content of who they were or the historical context. And right, so the argument has been sort of. Bandera was a figure who represented, right, he was a symbol of resistance to German and Russian and whatever other kind of imperial rule in Ukraine. And that when people in today in Ukraine kind of invoke his image or his legacy, it's not about the fact that he was an anti-Semite. Um, it's about the fact that he resisted Nazi or Soviet rule or things of this nature. And so the, the retort to that has been from a lot of historians is you don't just get to just excuse or ignore actual visions and beliefs of people in, in historical context just because you know you don't like it or it's inconvenient right um and that can be you know again that can be harmful and be problematic and often kind of undercut your own moral legitimacy when you're making arguments about you know defending the ukrainian state and so on and so forth so um you know again he's it's it's been his popularity has grown since 2014 there are there are sectors of ukrainian society who support his legacy and his vision in either they lie about his past or they try to ignore it or some of them actually embrace the ethno-nationalism right um so he's only become more and more of a powerful symbol sadly as a result of the russian conflict where you know other figures you know who might present um you know kind of an, something easier to work with uh in terms of the legacies of resistance um and it could include any number of people i mean whether it could be poets like uh, writers like lesa ukraina or 
um, the figures related to resistance within the Soviet project. Um, Leonid uh, Chernovil was um, a, a, a dissident during the late Soviet period. There are figures, um, enlightened, thoughtful figures. Um, I'm going to think of something I've thought in my head in around, again, the First World War and the Civil Wars period or people connected to this kind of failed Ukrainian, brief failed Ukrainian state in 1918. You know, people who embraced an open and and kind of democratic Ukraine. There are a lot of people to choose from from that period too. Um, it's just these people don't have um, they don't just they don't have necessarily have the same um, they don't have the same residence for whatever reason or kind of cachet. Um, and that's maybe why they're not chosen or just because there's a powerful group of people or there's a constituency in Ukraine and especially abroad in the diaspora who are really invested in the legacy. The particular legacies of this one particular nationalist movement uh, and its leadership from the Second World War. And so for whatever reason, that seems to have kind of uh, that has just become a lightning rod. And it's a lightning rod for multiple sides. So the Russians are always happy to talk about this and kind of play up Bandera as a fascist and somebody who cooperated with Germany. That's more complicated story too. Germany put him in a concentration camp after the first months of the war as a political prisoner, not like the way we tend to think about other camp prisoners, but uh, a political prisoner survives a war. He's fine in the camp, but they imprison him because they see him as a threat. Um, so, but he gets painted as a fascist by the Russians. Again, a lot of Jewish diaspora around the world are very much offended by um, him be kind of becoming this lionized figure in ukraine right um and then there are a lot of people in ukraine who are not happy about it either just see them he just see him as too toxic um too toxic of of a figure uh versus anyone else um in terms of malcolm x i mean i don't know it's i think that's kind of that's hard to say um you know i don't um you know the american context is a little bit more complicated for other reasons than the reasons of ukraine um you know perhaps there's some Perhaps there's some commonality between, you know, uh, someone who's seen as a kind of liberator or defender of uh, of, uh, of of black people in America, whereas other people see him as, you know, somewhat less inclusive or more provocative, um, depending upon your perspective and understanding. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't go too far with that kind of comparison without understanding what the goals of the comparison would be, but all, 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 all just to say that in a sense that, yes, I mean, for some people, uh, a hero and other people is a more problematic figure. But I would say, on a whole, the movements in which Bandera was involved in and the violence that he was involved in, even if he wasn't directly responsible, but which he was certainly a part of, um, was definitely, I would, I mean, if, if I was to make one comparison, I'd say a far more toxic legacy than, you know, than Malcolm X, for sure. But I'm, I'm not an expert on, um, on, on civil rights and black liberation politics in the United States. And, um, you know, and I also know that there, yeah, there are a lot of people who, um, were able to find a lot of admirable things, um, in Malcolm X and his vision, but I, that's, you know, I would let other people speak to that. So. Yeah, absolutely. And moving into the later um, Soviet Union period, how did Chernobyl change the power dynamics and relationship between the USSR government and the Ukrainian region? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that there was a massive change after this. I mean, this I mean, what was not necessarily what wasn't really important was high politics in the Soviet Union at this time. I mean, politics were already 
very broken. Uh, Soviet, I mean, the Soviet Union as a functioning empire was largely broken by the time of Chernobyl. What Chernobyl does is um, tells Ukrainians, right, that whatever amount of trust might have been left in the Soviet project is largely squandered at this point. Um, and it probably, and I'm not an expert in this time period, but I assume my understanding is that it has an effect on certain Ukrainian leadership within the Soviet project, right, about, um, about, uh, you know, about the, about the problems in the Soviet period, I mean, in the late Soviet period, of which there are innumerable, um, obviously, the, 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 you know, they're just a complete grinding to a halt of so many functions of Soviet society by the end of the 1980s. Um, I mean, Chernobyl is largely a symptom of a larger disease of just pathological uh, distrust and secrecy um you know the fact that in a, you know the fact that um the fact that an accident accident happened at a nuclear plant like is not in and of itself an indictment of communism we will all remember that the same not the same thing but something equally dangerous that could have wiped out the entire eastern seaboard of the united states you know, or at least the northeast of the united states happened a few years prior in central pennsylvania um was also subject to some cover-up and lying as well within the american system um so that in and of itself was not necessarily you know that accidents happen at nuclear plants as we all know now um but the way in which it was handled and the way in which it was covered up and how decisions were made and a lack of transparency um, and a lack of information provided to the public, um, that that was really the rot in the Communist Party um, and the way in which the Soviet Union was governed. So I think more important is how people, you know, that was yet another, you know, that was another kind of another chip in the armor of, you know, kind of trust and belief in the Soviet project. I think people, especially Ukrainian officials who went through that experience, as well as, of course, Ukrainian people, um, certainly did not come out of that believing in the Soviet system any more than they did prior to it, you know, obviously far, far less. And that would be important, you know, in motivating um, the independence movements in Ukraine, these dissident movements. Um, and yeah, and again, just kind of support for uh, an independent Ukraine outside of the Soviet project. Um, yeah, for the final question, moving into the current day with the war in Ukraine and between Russia, um, why do you think, in a more universal manner, why do you think that governments choose uh, genocide? Uh, which governments or what context would you be asking about? Uh, Russia committing a genocide in Ukraine currently. Okay, I mean, so, sure, in the question, why? <laughs> so, um so again, the genocide claim is is still something that's debated, right? I, I think it's it's clear that um, you know it, it's clear that Russia is committing crimes in Ukraine. The war in of itself is a crime, right? So it's a violation. It's a clear and marked violation of international law. It's, the, it's what the it's what the Nazis were tried for at Nuremberg, which is people seem to believe that Americans seem to believe that the Nazis were tried for the Holocaust, um, which they were not. Um, that was not the focus of the Nuremberg trials at all, actually. Um, that was, if anything, just a side note. Um, the Nazis were tried for the war of aggression, uh, which was invading other sovereign countries. That's why they were, that's why they were, Nazi leaders were hanged, was not because of um, a lot of the other atrocities that they undertook, even if some of them were enumerated there. Um, so the Russians have committed the war of aggression uh, and violated the sovereignty of another nation. And they've obviously committed a number of other crimes 
uh, during the war, whether it's instances of sexualized violence or uh, small-scale massacres of what seems to be mostly able-bodied male citizens of Ukraine. Um, there's also the question of uh, the removal of children from certain parts of Feldstaff, eastern Ukraine, which to me is probably the strongest argument for a genocide claim. Um, and again, I won't get into the whether I think it's legitimate or not. Um, I, I'll just say is that it's very clear that crimes are being committed. How we how we describe or or discuss those crimes, whether it's crimes against humanity war crimes or genocide there's kind of a litany of ways of possibilities to discuss and articulate these these crimes um what's important i'll say and i think this is always should be noted depending upon what's important to think about when you're having these conversations is from what vantage point so if you're talking legally right then there's a specific legal language around um crimes of war and how they should be described so you, you, the terms i just mentioned right um there's obviously political language which you can kind of tend to say whatever you want because it's for political purposes right um there's scholarly discourse whether it's historians or political scientists or other people who are going to use language again not not dissimilar from lawyers or other people but they're going to have different goals in mind of kind of thinking about and describing or look seeking to understand the roots of violence um and how to describe it so it's important more generally when talking about violence and crimes committed during conflict whether no whether that conflict's a full-blown war or a government attacking its own citizenry right it's always important to talk about what do we, you know, what do we mean? Are we talking about the legal definition of genocide? Are we talking about a political definition? Are we talking about a scholarly definition? What definition of genocide are we using? Are we using the UN definition, right? Um, so all those kind of things are just important caveats when having that discussion. And I have colleagues who firmly believe it's a genocide of others who firmly don't, but almost everybody agrees that crimes are being committed. Um, as for why are crimes being committed, um, I, it, it depends. I mean, in some ways it baffles the mind. We don't understand why any nation state in this day and age, especially one that wants to see itself as part of uh, a new international order or as an important state on the global scene, uh, would go into a country to commit crimes. Um, we don't, I mean, to, to one degree, we don't know enough, enough yet really about um, uh, about the ultimate goals here, right? Um, we suspect the goal was to probably... I mean, we we strongly understand the goal was to potentially end the war within a few days and a few weeks, topple the government and put in a new government in charge. Um, that largely was probably the goal and not a goal of coming in and killing millions of Ukrainians. Um, but it's often, and this is, there are a lot of historical precedents for this, where we see mass violence and genocide often occur are not the initial plans are often offshoots or consequences of other plans, whether they're failed or planned or otherwise, right? The, the Nazi example is probably a little bit of an exception to that, where that was um, not necessarily planned ahead of time, but it was part of an evolution of a plan that, that was that was already underway and was escalated during the, the, the invasion of the Soviet Union. In this case, in terms of the violence that we're seeing, it's hard to say, right? I, I don't think that the goal was to come in and to kill everybody because otherwise what would have been the point then um, of any of this? Um, it, it doesn't even make any doesn't even make any sense even on the Russians own terms. Um, but when we see lashing out, when we see the kind of violence that we're seeing, it's often a result as frustrations of how things are going. Right. So we're often going to see. You know, commanders looking at commanders themselves ordering for extrajudicial or, you know, kind of extra legal killings during wartime. Um, we're going to see frustrations uh, of soldiers uh, taking out violence on local populations, things like this. Um, these are often 
not a part of the plan, but can become the plan over time, right? So you can see kind of a you can see kind of a spiral effect oftentimes during military conflicts or invasions of this sort where you know there was perhaps one intention early on in and of itself a crime to invade a, a sovereign country uh but then as that plan becomes frustrated or the war begins to go poorly right or there's a loss of morale um there's as we know tens of thousands of russian soldiers have been killed and demoralized right or wounded right as, as a result of this conflict right when these things start to happen then we can often see kind of retaliation and revenge and other kind of license to do things which may not have or may not have been a part of the plan from the begin with but become a part of the plan now if you take the view that this is an intentional genocide from the start which many people do and that's fine then the argument would be you know they intended to come in and wipe out i don't know all of ukraine um that was always a plan and they had a clear plan and they came in and did it um i don't see as much evidence of that i also don't again i don't understand the goal you know to kill 40 million people that wouldn't really make didn't really seem they couldn't even take kiev in a week so um over or, or couldn't take they couldn't take out the government over a year and a half so they didn't really have the wherewithal or, or manpower to do something like that um while again the, the the counter argument too is also that we've seen a lot of really nasty language coming from putin and people around him and the media and other folks right so there's been a lot of um Obviously, there have been a lot of things that could count as genocidal comments and statements from people in power in Russia. Um, and then it's a question about making a connection between those statements and what we see on the ground. So if we see massacres taking place on the ground and we see people in the media or in the Russian government talking about the, you know, the Ukraine doesn't have a right to exist or Ukraine is not a real nation or the Ukrainian people need to be punished, right? Then you get, we kind of ask questions about that causal relationship. Um, about why the violence is occurring and about what the actual intentions are, which is important in thinking about things like genocide versus other crimes or crimes against humanity. So that's where a lot of the discussion uh, seems to happen. Um, my quick take on my quick take on this situation as of right now is, you know, the goal here was to again destroy the Ukrainian state and create a puppet state for for Russia. Uh, and in the wake of those frustrations, there was little protection of the Ukrainian population from. A Russian army and probably from a lot of commanders who condoned and allowed uh, a great deal of horrific violence to be enacted on the Ukrainian population. Um, and I should say, regardless of whether you want to call it genocide or crimes against humanity or whatever you, you want to call it, the people who committed these crimes in Ukraine should be brought to inter international courts of justice, every single one of them, uh, including the Russian leadership, and they should have to pay for what they've done. But on that note, we can only look to the future to see what exactly will happen and how justice will be brought to the lives of Ukrainian citizens that have been lost. Thank you for listening to this episode of Current History, and I hope you tune in on my next incredible interview.